Welcome everyone to Studio Soundtracks, the monthly program that takes listeners behind the scenes of making music for film and television. I'm your host, Chandler Poling. On today's show, I am speaking with composers Martin Phipps and Anthony Willis. Martin composed the original score to Ridley Scott's Napoleon, and Anthony composed Emerald Fennel's Saltburn, both films newly released in cinemas in case you are catching this episode live and decide to go see the films in theaters yourself. I highly recommend it, by the way. Uh, Martin, you were on a previous episode back in 2021 where we discussed your work on The Crown. And Anthony, this is your first time on Studio Soundtrack. So welcome to you both. Great. Great to be back. Thanks so much for having me, Charlotte. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's start at the beginning for you both. Um, We'll start with uh, you, Anthony. When did you decide that you wanted to become a composer? I was I was really lucky that I I say lucky I was it was slightly like child labor but I went to sing in a English choir uh, in Windsor and it's quite a common 
common thing in like big cathedrals or in, in this case in St. George's Chapel, that um, there'd be a uh, resident choir of, of young trebles who, with unbroken voices. So that was where I kind of got my musical training. And, you know, I just fell in love with, with music and, and the making of music and kind of started to love how it's put together. And then simultaneously, I think growing up in the, in the 90s, just with all the amazing films that, that were coming out, I just fell in love with the idea of, oh, well, maybe I could, you know, merge these two, these two passions. And, you know, that's how it, that's how it really started for me. Wonderful. Martin, what about you? Uh, so I did a drama course at university and um, uh, was so bad at acting that I ended up doing the music for the plays. Uh, that was basically how it happened. It was a, a beautiful twist of fate, a loss for the acting industry, obviously. But, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it, I, I was already all, always wanted to do music. I just didn't quite know how, where to focus that and uh, and thought, I, you know, I thought I wanted to be in bands. I thought I wanted to write music with in groups of people. But actually writing music for a play gave it a narrative, gave it a context for me and... Uh, and also, I didn't have to work with my um, asshole ba- band members either, so that was that was great. Um, no offense, guys, you know, I'm sure it's, it's all water <laughs> under the bridge. Uh, uh, so yeah, that's how I came to it. Well, fantastic. So, um, how did you study for this line of work in particular? Do you was schooling required to score feature films? Do you want to go? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I. I I, I'm sort of processing that it's 9am in LA. My child kept me up all night, and I'm having the distinct honour of sharing this with Martin, who, who I'm I'm a, a big fan of his his work overall. So it seems crazy to answer these questions first, but um, yeah, I mean, for me at that time, there wasn't really a lot of resources online. You know, that, like I think you'd be really excited if somebody posted like a photo of a composer coming out of remote control. You know, oh Harry Gregson Williams going to his car. It was like wow, like that, that. That was about as much really as there was about this mysterious industry um, and universe. Certainly at that time, and there was a website called ScoringSessions.com that you know would post photos from scoring sessions. That was literally it. I think um, obviously now there's just the the sky's the limit in terms of what you can learn about how people do this and also, you know, what kind of tech we're using and what kind of tutorials we're, uh, you know, how people are using tech and and to, you know, really kind of, you know, a lot of the equipment we're all using is all is all available to anyone. And actually the sample libraries now are all kind of commercially available. I think when I started, good samples just weren't the case. but in terms of the craft, I mean, you know, I I uh, did a music degree at Bristol, which was which I I really enjoyed. I think it was a very vibrant city, and like had such an eclectic mix of music, which I think was really important to me, like socially and like recreationally. I'd go out and listen to a lot of music, and then the course at Bristol was kind of continuing to be quite grounding and you know counterpoint and just good good skills. That then when I came came to LA, I had, and that really helped me most of my work for the first 10 years was as an additional music composer. 
And so that for the composers I was working with, like having those skills, I think just really, really helped. And you know, when I got to LA, I did a, a film scoring program called the uh, Scoring for Motion Pictures and Television program at USC, which is a very two semester washing machine, quick experience, but gave me the chance to record with the kind of orchestras that um, that people use here in town. And it was such like, getting your work performed as a composer is such a challenge. And there's always something about that experience that's perhaps unsatisfactory. You know, there's no rehearsal time or there's only the people come for the concert or, you know, and truth be told, maybe the orchestra is not amazing, but quite frankly, your composing probably isn't that good yet. At least it, mine wasn't. And so recording with really good musicians for me was like, ah, well, that's what I wrote. <laughs> there were no excuses left anymore. It was like, no, that's what you did. And if there's anything wrong with it, it's your fault, not theirs. So that was, for me, one of the best takeaways from the program. Sometimes things work much better than I ever thought they would. And sometimes they failed spectacularly. So um, it was a great, great year, or half a year, really. Martin, what about you? What about your education in music? Yes, so... I uh, I went to the National Film and Television School in just outside London, and um, that was pretty eye opening uh, and very easy going in those days. I mean, it was I think they've now got ten students on it. It's much tougher. It's very competitive now. Uh, when I was there, I got um, uh, we, it was three years. I didn't even have to come in if I didn't want to. Uh, I got paid £100 a week, let alone having to pay any fees. Can you imagine that? I mean, that's, <laughs> that's incredible. They literally gave me £100 a week to go there or not to go there most of the time. Uh, and I just wrote the music for the films of the directors there. And that was just fantastic. Um, uh, otherwise, I was just sticking close to anybody or everybody I knew was going to make a make a film, really, or a TV or a tiny bit, snippet of something just to write music to and... Um, yeah, I wasn't wasn't really hanging out with musicians much as I love them, but they weren't going to give me a job. So I that was the you know main bit of advice was just stick you know st stick as close to people who actually might make something and give you a job. Um, uh, and then it was just uh, yeah from from there I started getting bits and then finally broke into drama and it's a big leap getting into that that next stage actually moving from doing small documentaries or little pieces to actually breaking into a drama uh and um yeah I don't think I heard an orchestra play my stuff till you know till my 30s really I think your know, late 20s anyway uh, and uh yeah as Anthony says that Anthony says that's an amazing moment um uh I personally I always blame my writing not the orchestra and and should should perhaps blame the players a little bit more sometimes but uh yeah it's always just like oh my god well you know it's obviously crap what I've written so um uh, that doesn't work. Um, but uh, as Anthony points out, that the sometimes if you get great players, they they will make anything sound good, and that's a that's a joy. What's a what's a trick when you're in that recording situation? You've got the orchestra. What you've written is not working. How do you fix it in the moment? Uh, or oh, you, just, <laughs> you just panic. Really, uh, don't panic. Is the is the is the key? Uh, uh, I don't know. Just change a few things around. You know, just try uh, strip it out. You know, that's that's often what I do is just try and take things out and work out what's working. And um, uh, yeah, just like much like my writing process, it's it's often just trial and error until something sounds halfway decent. 
What about you, Anthony? Tip or trick? I, I, think I think we're so spoiled now with samples that I think we get such. Well, part of the part of our process is for, for most of us now is, is that we have to demo things pretty precisely. You know, the days of playing themes and musical ideas on the piano and then the director hearing them at the scoring, which would have been wonderful, but I imagine terrifying too. And a mm. lot of composers, to my understanding, used to get fired in that process because, like, on the stage, because the the score was coming together right there and then in front of them. Whereas I think, you know, now most directors I work with, they really enjoy the scoring process because they're very comfortable with the demos. So they, it, it, for them, it's just a, it's a nice, you know, um, detailing process where they kind of weigh in and go, oh, you know, what about, I'd love to hear more, more or less of this, you know. Um, but but because, we're, because we have to demo so precisely, um, I think there's, generally like lucky we're lucky that we've kind of already had our failings or at least i have normally have had my failings early on but yeah if you if you get in a tough situation where something just doesn't go down um you know the way you hope that like martin said yeah you kind of isolate the culprit and then you know, maybe get that on its own and fix it fix it in post i mean you're you're totally right anthony it's like these days if it's not working in the, you know, it's almost like the orchestral sessions are a luxury and because those demos have to be so good and, and quite often the directors end up preferring the demos in my case and and go, what have you done? Why have you, why have you put this classical lush sounding orchestra with all these people in the room all over this? You know, I like the neutrality of those of those samples. Um, so yeah, if it's not working in the, in, in, the, in the room with the orchestra, then you go, well, I'll just go back to my demo and it's fine. <laughs> And, yeah. uh, you know, that's uh, it's a sad thing, but, you know, it's not quite the panic if you're not relying completely on this moment for it to come together, mm. most of the time anyway. Mm. Yeah, that, that's an interesting word that Martin just used, neutrality. Like, there is something about samples that once you, you, can, you can shape every, every detail and in, in a way, like, they're slightly denuded of human imperfection. And I guess that does just make them sit, sit down and be neutral I think that's yeah it. and I, I think also to be fair to the directors I mean the thing is they've now heard you know a high end people will have heard a big orchestra in a room in a lush sounding room and it, it's a very it's a very distinctive sound and it's used and that lineup is used again and again and again and, it, and it's at least with the samples you have a combination of different samples and as you said they are really good these days and interesting in their own right and they're all being used slightly differently and you get something that therefore is slight, sometimes slightly more original sounding or has something to it that, that a flavor to it that the directors like. And, and then when it's, a, it's a, a familiar, big, lush Hollywood sounding or orchestra, fantastic as it is, it's just, that's what it is. And they recognize that. And it's something like, oh no, I don't want that. I, I wanted what you had before. Right, the psychology of it, is, it just has a, a different feeling. Wow. Yeah, it immediately says, you know, lush, lush orchestra, you know, yeah. and that's not necessarily unless that's the that's the sound you're going for, then sometimes and I and I get it myself when I hear it as well. Sometimes it's like, oh no, and I'm often having I'm often getting them to play less and less musically. I mean it's the tragedy of it, but you know, less and less vibrato, uh, uh and you know, and trying to balance things out just like I had them on the sample. So it's not always very satisfying, I think, for the players. 
do my sessions, but yeah, there we go. Well, let's, let's talk about your, your projects and, and um, what it was like working with your directors. I was curious if uh, they were hands-on in the writing process. Did they give a few words of encouragement, send you on your way? You know, I'm just curious about the dynamic, uh, you know, from Ridley to Emerald. And um, I, let's start with Martin. What, what, what was that like? Uh, so, uh, yeah, I did start having conversations with Ridley really early on and he was, he was he was great at making me feel at ease and sort of giving me some early words of inspiration about where we were going with it. Um, and he he talked a lot about character and about how Napoleon was a an outsider and a, a, a sort of rough diamond, not a not not a, a polished aristocrat like the the rest of the French officers of his time. Uh, and and that that he really wanted that explored in the music. Um, he was very specific in that he wanted uh, a simple tune, a, a very, that again, wasn't too posh, too classical. Uh, and, and that there was, and then he introduced this idea of these Corsican singers as well, which was amazing and uh, sort of really resonated for him about the idea of Napoleon's heritage and his background and, and coming from Corsica, again, being an outsider to, to France. Uh, so he, he gave me some really, some really great tips to start with. It wasn't then that he he didn't then hover over me or or um uh you know uh, stand behind me pointing at the screen as as I have had directors do and that's that's great. It's, he did, there was no micromanaging, but um but he would just jump in at key moments and, and give me um, yeah some really good steers. Hmm. What about you, Anthony? Yeah, for for Emerald, I mean Saltburn early on, you know, conversations are about basically about romance which which took me by surprise because reading the script it, it's there but there's a you know even the way that the saltburn was tent there was a slightly nefarious feel to the to the whole thing and i suppose a nefarious mystery but as as the scoring really kind of we got our teeth into it what what we both really wanted to do was mis you know misdirect the audience and make oliver more likable and you know, really lean into his and, and and empathetic. You know, lean into his loneliness and kind of get you to root for him a, a little bit. So that it was, it was really that's what I mean. I just love about working with Emerald is that she will not go for the obvious thing with music. I mean, well, she she loves music that's encrypt like you know needle drops that just instantly tell you what they are. But at the same time, she's got such an intuitive taste of what she wants the score to kind of lean on. And, and for, for this, yeah, it was really romance and, and, and fantasy and, and you know, a lot of lust and longing. So, um, you know, obviously with Saltburn, it needed a slightly classical feeling because that represented the aristocratic wealth and the kind of sta status that you're trying to, that Oliver's trying to inhabit and be a part of. So that was our starting point. And then from there, you know, kind of figuring out how to subvert it was um was a lot of fun I mean she she really she's a very detailed filmmaker so she I think I think to Martin's point yeah it, it does sound like a nightmare having a director sitting too much over your shoulder but in the case of Emerald she's so fun and collaborative she's really wonderful to do that with because you know she it, it gives you a confidence and, and it's a blessing of the music you know when the director's really like oh I love that element and oh let's have that start let's just have that on its own and then let's um you know have that go a bit longer or shorter or I, I, one one thing that 
Um, I don't know. I'm curious to see what Martin thinks of this, but what I found really interesting about working with Emerald is generally as composers, we, we add, you know, we start with an idea and we build and we build and it's very satisfying to do that. And it's more unusual to actually take things out as a piece carries on. But that was something that Emerald kind of zeroed in on. She's like, well, we could hit it by taking things out. And it's like, oh my God, no director ever has suggested that. They always want the idea of adding something in order to acknowledge something in the picture. But in this case, Emerald really, really latched onto that as a way of, uh, as a way of shaping things. And, and it's, it's good because you, you can only fit so many things in a piece of music. Yeah, well, speaking uh, of well, go ahead, Martin. No, no, I was just, I was just going to jump in on that idea, and I, uh, that's really interesting because I don't know. It's just seems to be the director that I work with. I mean, not necessarily Ridley, but a lot of certainly on the Crown with Peter Morgan, and quite a lot of I work with a guy called Hugo Blick, who's a fantastic director, and they were always taker outers. You know, they were always getting me to strip stuff back and go, no, less, 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 less. Do it with less, and uh, that was really. I, I was, you know, I had the sort of frustration the other way. I wanted to put more in, you know, and they're always going, no, no, keep it simple. And often they were, you know, they, well, they were nearly always right. And, and it was far more effective with, you know, less is more. And, and it, I think that's such a good maxim for a lot of music and, and many directors, I think, fall into the trap of, of just piling stuff in. And it's, it's a sign of a lack of confidence in the material and uh, just generally, um, uh, not quite knowing what they want. So when you find a, a director, you know, and and absolutely uh, really was was great at this was was just knowing exactly what they want, and and if that means taking stuff out, then that's that's a, a really brave and and bold move, and and often really effective. Cool. Well, yeah. I mean, speaking of more at the at the top of the show, we heard your piece from Napoleon called uh, Austerlitz Kyrie. Yeah. <laughs> That, that's a very boastful piece. It's a it's a stunning vocal piece from a group of Corsican singers. And so, Martin, can, I just was wanting you to talk a little bit about, um, you know, why you chose this group and what the recording process was like working with these men. Yeah, great. Um, so, yeah, so this was a, a suggestion of Ridley's about the Corsican sound and those singers. Um, and I'd heard an arrangement they'd done of a traditional piece. And uh, we so we took that arrangement and I developed it and uh, reorchestrated it a bit and and then added a whole load of stuff to it in various points in the film, uh, but kept their their original sound. And it was these guys singing it that we'd heard originally and loved. And so we, you know, being the the, the beauty of working on a, on a bigger film is that they, it was just like, so two days later they were flown in and to our studios in London and we recorded them. Uh, and uh, to be honest, it was really hard work doing it. Partly, I mean, they they turned up with this music that I'd never seen in my life before. I mean, didn't match the music I'd written at all because their, their original basic notation was literally some kind of medieval notation that they were using for a traditional chant. Uh, and then on top of that, they wouldn't sing along to anything. I mean, I, I restructured this, this piece of theirs and so, so I could fit other stuff to it. And they, they they would just about have a click in their ears, in their headphones, but they wouldn't uh, sing. They wouldn't even have a note on a piano just to get their starting pitch right. For them, it was all about singing in the room with with the, the sort of five of them and the sounds that they got as a, as, a, as a sort of some of the parts, as the 
as a whole ensemble and they didn't want to be distracted by anything else and uh while it you know while it was an amazing experience recording them it was it was a lot of work to try and then get them get them to match the tuning of what i'd written and what we've recorded already and uh uh but we got there you know it, it, and it was a great experience and they're just and because of the way that they operate their sound is a little bit not like anything you've heard it's it's a really it's a really great sound that they produce it is yeah and it's as people heard at the top of the show it's it's really it's really yeah unique and robust and 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 i really like that track a lot so thank you so much for uh bringing it to the show uh i want to go to anthony's work now um i'm going to play a track titled felix tour from the film saltburn Anthony, can you tell me about this track? Uh, I mean, the music makes us feel at home. You know, it almost feels like we're in a fantasy, as you said earlier, where Emerald was kind of kind of directing you in this in this way. Can you just talk a little bit about this track? Yeah, so this was one of the ones where I, I developed this kind of uh, this op, this arpeggio theme for Oliver that goes all the way through the score. And it it's, you know, sometimes in some tracks, like throwing pebbles, it actually it's more of a kind of classical romance that like a melody in this case, it's more of a contemporary arpeggio that moves around the string section. And uh, the idea is that, you know, it ca carries on selling the, the fantasy of the house in this neoclassical language, but also has kind of a romantic feel to the harmony in it and a sense of longing, as you said, it's kind of welcoming and inviting. So, um, and then Emerald really liked the idea of making Felix, slightly cooler than that so for Felix we use a lot of whirly um like e-piano e so there's a there's a soft um yeah electric piano bed that, that the strings sit on top of um which was which was nice it just gave it a slight like tw twist for him you know he's got an earring so which he's not allowed to wear at Saltburn but so that was um yeah it was really fun to do and, and obviously I mean Jacob Lordy's it's a beautiful shot i mean most of it's shot in one shot and his performance is so amazing so it was so it's one of those scenes where you you want to you want to do as much as you can to fill the music with narrative but at the same time kind of let it sit down a little bit so you know it needed to be soft in the way that it was and soft and warm the way that it was played and then except there's like you know there's this cut where he goes into the long room and he opens up his arms and he's like this is the long room and you know, obviously it was important you know he's also going through all the 
the different rooms. So we wanted it to feel like it was kind of evolving a little bit. Um, and uh, yeah, really, really fun to do. And, and, and then ultimately that, you know, that music kind of pays off in the final act of the film as well. Hmm. Yeah. How did the music evolve throughout the film? I mean, are, are, did you feel you were scoring Oliver's journey or the house Saltburn itself, or it was it kind of touching on all sorts of different elements? M mainly Oliver's journey, really. Um, and, you know, the film obviously takes some slightly dark twists when he got, when he, in, in his kind of courting of Venetia in the middle of the film, it goes into a slightly more vampire -y territory. And for that, we, you know, and would love the idea of using quite romantic chords, but with a more visceral, dark timbre. And I mean, touching on, on what Martin was saying about getting the musicians to play a little bit like loose sometimes. That was that was one where Emerald really liked that, which I I I I struggle with that a bit because I'd like things to all sound kind of quite complete. But actually when you watch the film it make you go, Oh yeah, of course it's so much more interesting and it's a bit more ragged. Um so yeah, no the, the it was really about Oliver's journey. So I had to, that's why we I like the idea of having this recurring shape that you know I could do anything with it. I could make it very very solitary or or more um, more romantic. Yeah, in an interview, Emerald said that uh, you know when they're at university, the film feels like it's going in one direction, but the second Oliver shows up at Saltburn, it takes on a, a horror house vibe. You know, with the butler being so imposing and the the way the shots kind of change. Uh, did you ever feel like you wanted to lean into horror at all, or were you always trying to play counter to that sort of vibe? I think that that was the thing that was more original. We we tried to keep things fairly fairly light counterintuitively and the, the big scene i think is one of the tracks that you you um you're going to play the maze where um that emerald wanted a hybrid feeling of waking up in the morning and should we, should we talk about this one now Chandler? is that is that cool we could talk about maze absolutely um yeah so um she wanted it to feel this like this heartbreak but also have a slightly you've woken up in the morning and everything's off feeling. And I did do originally a really horrific version of it that was like, you know, do, 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 you know, do, 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 like really kind of broody, broody basses. And, and, and actually it, what was important about that scene is that it came out of its A part, which was the piano cue before it. And then they're kind of connected and they, so they, I put them in the same key, which is a, a, it sounded like a simple thing, but it was important that you feel like you're picking up where you left off as opposed to going somewhere else. And it's just, and it was about kind of what's the latest we can, we can come in with the new, um, with this second, this addendum really, it's an addendum to the next scene that starts very, very simply and then builds and builds and builds. But it had, you know, we got the violins to do a kind of more, visceral um pitch you know pitch bending slightly more of a horror horror texture um and then ultimately kind of big there's a, had to be a big fracture and then it uh and then it kind of goes you know the, the floodgates open right well let's hear that track i'm gonna play the maze and then i'm gonna go right into napoleon's piano uh by martin and then we'll switch over to the martin so here is the maze and then napoleon's piano
Now, Martin, the track that we just heard of yours is not just named Napoleon's Piano for set dressing. You know, it's in fact, you know, the piano heard in the track is Napoleon's own piano himself. So I just was wondering if you could talk about the process of finding this piano and then convincing the caretakers to allow you to record it for film. Right. Uh, So I got a call one day from my agent, Daryl, who was very excited because he'd heard of this that there was a piano that once belonged to Napoleon. Well, obviously once, because it's a long time ago. Um, uh, somewhere outside the M25 uh, ring road around London. And um, uh, so, of course, we had to go and check it out. And uh, it's an, um, in an amazing collection of pianos uh, in this sort of, uh, yeah, this collection of sort of mini museum. I mean, it's open by appointment to the public. Uh, and it's got... It's got Mahler's piano. It's got Haydn's piano. I think it's got one belonging to J.S. Bach. Uh, it's got uh, Marie Antoinette's piano. Um, and there was this uh, 1805, something like that, um, uh, sort of box, small boxy piano uh, belonging to that Napoleon bought for his second wife, Mary Louise. And, I mean, it was an incredible thing. The whole process was really interesting because we were or laid out in this room is the advancement in technology from 18, sort of 1770, where you're still on a harpsichord, through to 1830. So the space of about 60, 60 or less years in the evolution of the piano. And Napoleon's piano is sort of halfway between a harpsichord and a pianoforte, a sort of modern piano, which by the time you get to Mahler's piano in 1830, it's really sort of recognisable as what we have today. Uh, and it sounds like halfway in between the two, literally, uh, and it sort of in, and actually sounds pretty awful in modern terms because uh, it's sort of neither or. But for our purposes, it had a sort of otherness. It had an outsiderness. It had a it had a roughness that really suited Napoleon, and uh, it felt it was great to record. And the authenticity of it, having it in the score, just felt right and was was really enjoyable to do, to do. But um, as I say, seeing this, witnessing this uh, this changing technology, which of course actually drove, just a little side point here, like you could see drove the way that people were writing music, you know, and, you, and that leap from the Baroque period through classical to romantic. And so that when you're playing a harpsichord, you have to put a lot of notes in, in basically raw terms. You have to have lots of twiddles and trills because there's no sustain at all. By the time you get to, to a real a modern piano, you can hold, hit a chord, hold the stop pedal down, and it rings for ages and has a richness to it. And that totally changed the way music was written, I think. I mean, as much as the vision of the, of the composers, it was this technology that changed. And, and we witnessed this recording, recording this piano. So that was a, a really, really interesting day. Amazing. What, what was like the biggest challenge of recording a piano from the 1800s? Well, actually, it was really, it was very simple. We 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 just took a sound team in there and recorded it. And and it, it didn't matter that it sounded, I mean, it, as a, it was such, it's such a plinky sound, the tuning didn't really matter. I mean, it does sound in some ways a little like a bad pub piano or something, or something you'd find in the corner of a bar. Um, but actually, it was, no, it, 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 we, that didn't bother us. And, and it's sort of the rougher, the better in a lot of ways. Um, so no, that was, that was quite an easy, easy one to do. And the melody is very simple. It's very, very unique. 
in the in kind of like it, it stands out and obviously is used over and over in the in the film as probably Napoleon's theme. Um is yeah. that the the writing of that melody was it uh was it pretty straightforward like a one take wonder or was that um, well, it was it was it really kept saying no write me something simpler write me you know and I started off with something much grander and more sort of advanced for want of a better word but but he really wanted something very simple and almost folk-like I suppose and and even a little touch of a sort of mafioso feel with that solo trumpet you know godfathery feel in there when we do that on the do the tune on the trumpet um so uh yeah he, he was just pushing me to be simple and you know and and, and keep it really um keep it quite unique and quite separate from the the very classical music in the film as well so that was it was quite nice to try and keep the score separate from that and not get it let it get too bound up in 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 all of because there's a lot of source and a lot of of, of classical music from the period in there Right, right. Um, Anthony, I, I want to move over to your score and share uh, shared bathroom in a second. But I just want to talk about this scene because uh, I'm just curious how how uh, the track isn't very long, as as we're about to hear. But how how do you approach a scene like this shared bathroom scene? And, uh, you know, what were some of the conversations like with Emerald to to score it? Yeah, I think my first part of the scene was much more in the Saltburn world of, of being you know, classical and, and cl it was a it was not for not in a it, it narratively translated to something that sounded clever, as in it was like interlocking arpeggios and it was it was clever. And I think what Emerald didn't like about that approach was it, it didn't have a viscerality to it and a primal kind of urge to it. And so, so she suggested, I mean, there's, there's some quite cool 90s needle drops in the score that have, you know, have a strong kind of swelling synth um, character to them, as, you know, a lot of dance music does and music from that era, era did. Uh, and so she's like, well, what if we kind of, you know, infuse some, something like that? And of course, your, your immediate reaction is, oh, my gosh, how can I make this? fit everything else in the score so it doesn't just feel like where did that come from or it doesn't feel unearned and actually take you out of the movie and so i said we settled on this idea of an organ that you know she'd loved organ in general that was one of the first things she'd actually pitched for the score in general was this idea of a, a really kind of gothic instrument that also has such a human soulfulness to it because it's so breath based so you know so based on on the exchange of air and um, anyway, so I, I put I put an, a sustained organ through a through a dance plugin that gives it that kind of lustful throb. And as the as the you know the filter opens, you hear the, the higher frequencies kind of kick in, and you get that breathy sort of wanting. Um, but but actually, kind of it's sort of empathetic. He, he's because he's not Oliver's not getting what he wants in the scene. So it's sort of sad, but sexy and lustful at the same time. Um, and that, that kind of underpinned, that underpinned the cue. And then, you know, we leaned into some, you know, cello quartet, which was sort of really with a lot of longing and, and kind of slight, slightly sexy portamentos. And, and then, you know, organ chords too, that give it that, you know, he's, he's, he's essentially worshipping Felix in the scene. So it had a kind of almost ritualistic pagan, 
pagan feeling to it. So it was, um, yeah, it's a, a lot of fun to do, and, and that you know that was that was really useful as a as a kind of lust theme that that happens a few, a few other times in the movie. Absolutely. Um, well, here is that track. This is a shared bathroom. I just am curious about you, both a question for both of you about scoring character, um, especially if it's a character that you don't like. Do you ever find that challenging to write music for an unsympathetic character or do you like the challenge of it yourself? Not if I, I never mind not personally liking the character as long as it's convince as long as there's some truth in the character and they're convincing and their performance is great then it, it's a joy to score uh, it almost I mean love hate any strong emotion you feel about a character is great to score I and mean, that's what you're tapping into so uh, yeah for me I've never I've never yet come across I mean maybe if the whole subject material is so horrible that 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 I could see I wouldn't want to there have there have been some scenes I've had to watch again and again, which I haven't enjoyed. But it's not about the if the characters are good, then that's always a joy to score. Yeah, I mean, not quite what you're asking, John, but I think like villains are some of the most thing, fun things to score because I think you know, in some of my favorite books, like the the or movies, you know, it's always the backstory that's the most exciting. It's like how did what's the motivation? How did you become this? And obviously, musically, that invites some kind of mythology or his history and that that's really fun to do like kind of mm. build, building a world or building a past or a, you know e even if a character is really dark um it's it's actually sometimes really fun fun to do mm. did you have to do that with oliver's character at all because you know as as we learn in the film he's not quite as he portrays himself so were you digging into any of his past i mean for him it we, we had to really so much of the score is about kind of getting you to look the other way and then ultimately to, to, to then for then everything to fall into place so yes there was you know we love the idea that when you'd watch the film again you'd go oh my god it was right in front of me like i love the term hidden in plain sight it's just right there but but you didn't you were looking you were thinking of it in a different way and so that's where the kind of math of i think that's where the the math of classical um, music was really useful because it has a cunning and a, a a technical mastery to it. You know, when you have a lot of arpeggios flying around, there's a there's a bravado or virtuosity to it. And essentially, the whole time Oliver's pulling strings, and you know, he's he's in command of his fantasy. And so that was a really useful language for that. It's like, you know, if you do it in a very sad, slow way, and then 
by the end of the film, he's just dance. It's it's a dance for him. Mm. So that I think you know that that language was really useful for the fact that he's very intelligent and he's he's got this sort of very very opportunistic calculating brain. Hmm. And Martin, how did you get in the head of of Napoleon? Uh, well, as I was saying, those you basically written sort of guidance of Ridley and talking a lot talking a lot about the character. Um, but he also talked about humor quite a lot as well, which I sort of didn't mention early on, and and that was really important. He 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 kept saying, "I don't want to take this character too seriously," and I think that was a really smart move and really helps us process uh, a, a historical figure like Napoleon and, and obviously the mayhem that he that he wreaked as well as 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 the you know the positive sides of him. So. It was, um, yeah, I really enjoyed that. And and that was something he kept sort of just nudging me towards, uh, you know, and we did it with, you know, there's even a bit of, of French accordion in there, which is a sort of, that seems like the most obvious possible instrument you could use for uh, a character from, uh, that's, um, you know, base, basically a French character. Um, but it kind of worked in just little bits and just gave you the allowance, allowed the audience to just, just sort of smirk at this character and 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 see his his hubris and his foolishness and uh, and his ultimate you know terrible ego that that was that that caused him to lose sight of of pretty much everything well uh we have reached the end of the question part except i always have an ending question for you guys um Martin, you've answered this question before, which is what was the first album you purchased and what was the last thing you listened to? Now, if you go back and listen to Martin's episode, he said his first album was the Star Wars soundtrack for the first purchase. So maybe a second album or an early album that you purchased as a youth uh, and then the last thing you listened to. And Anthony, why don't we start with you? Do you remember your first album that you purchased? Oh, my God. There's a Tower Records right where my parents' house was when I was a kid, and it had this like, um, like amazing mirror as you go down the stairs that just felt it made it was one of those places that made it feel like it was bigger than it actually is. So it sort of seared in my brain as this slightly strange, almost spiritual place. And the first thing I ever bought, I'm pretty sure, was Aqua, uh, Barbie Girl, mm -hmm. the tape, just the single. Uh, probably that was probably like nine or ten or something. Anyway, uh, that was the first. And what's the last? I mean, it's been a while. It's, pro it's probably a Radiohead album, or something. But sadly, we're we're just such in a streaming world now. No, it's the the question is the last thing you listened to. So not necessarily. Oh, the last thing I listened to. I'm so sorry. Okay. I'm so sorry. Last thing I listened to. Oh my gosh. Well, obviously it was um, Martin's score for the new season of The Crown. <laughs> <laughs> well that really was actually, I, was your score so yeah there you go I was listening to Saltburn about 20 minutes ago so. oh how, how yeah. I, so yeah the question is just like you know you say all this stuff and other composers have listened to it and they're like yeah I didn't really get that <laughs> no 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 it's eye opening ear opening ear, yeah but no I, I have seen I have seen the latest season of The Crown and it's it's amazing and harrowing I mean I've seen half of it because we don't get that we don't get that yeah that was the last thing i watched so. hmm. oh that's good that's good it gets it, it cheers up in the second half if that's any, any consolation it's an andrew's adventures <laughs> yeah indeed exactly 
Um, uh, the first thing, well, listen up. The, then the first thing I I bought after Star Wars, although I probably was even too young to buy Star Wars myself, but I think that I bought myself was this is really going to age me. Uh, video killed the radio star by is it Buggles or something like Bungles, that? Bungles, yes, <laughs> right. Which was uh, groundbreaking at the time because I think they did a video for it, and that was really early MTV video days, and that was yeah, it's the very first music video. Uh, is it? There you go. Or the first that MTV played, I should say. It's the first, yeah, very first video that MTV played. And right. featured a struggling unknown composer called Hans Zimmer. There you go. That was yeah. that was my next fun point. But the, yeah. oh, sorry, sorry. No, 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 no. Fill me in. I don't no, know no, this no, detail. Wait, what? Yeah. 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 Well, there you go. Who knows? Linked already. But that's that's uh, yeah, exactly. Already following following the, the disciple of Hans. Yeah, John Hans is in the he's in the video because he's in the band. Is he? Okay, I never know. I never, yeah, yeah. never, never clocked that. Fantastic. I have to go back and watch. It, it, it. He's he's there on a synth, and it and, and it's kind of um, yeah. It's, it's wow, kind of, I need to go back and watch it. Yeah. And last thing, Martin. Oh, Saltburn. Saltburn was your last thing. Yeah, yeah, that was that was the last thing, and it sounds great actually. I really really enjoyed it, and uh, I haven't seen the film yet, so. I was almost like shouting out no spoilers as you were talking earlier, but uh, that wouldn't be fair, really. Um, but uh, I, I, I guess it gets dark. Yeah, I'm I'm prepared. Well, yeah. I don't think we gave too many spoilers away, so you know, just just know, yeah, that our lead character he doesn't, you know, he seems sweet, but maybe he's not. That's that's the my, my my daughter's just gone to Oxford University, so she's really desperate to see it. So I'll watch oh. it with her. And, uh, and yeah, that's uh, that'll be funny. Well, awesome, guys. Thank you so much for joining me on Studio Soundtracks, only on Dub Lab Radio. Uh, we're going to have an outro music cue, which will be from Napoleon. This is Martin's work called Make the Rain Stop. Uh, but before we get there, I just want to make sure everybody goes to see these awesome films in theater. You can see Napoleon. You can see Saltburn both in theaters right now. And of course, the soundtracks are fully available wherever you stream music. And uh, yeah, so stay on for make the rain stop and thank you so much to martin and anthony for joining me real pleasure thanks john thanks so much for having us and thank you martin yeah great great to be with you